Hello and welcome back to Box to Box Euros edition. I'm your host, Alex Ibaceta. I can't already speak and it's from the first sentence. Um, joined as always by Abdul Abdullah and Jesse Parker Humphreys, ready to talk you through to the second set of matches from the Euro 2022. Now, Jesse, I think I know your answer, but let's start with Abdullah. Abdullah, what's what's the match you remember the most from, from the second group? I'm going to say this mainly because I want Jesse to have the full reaction to come through in this answer. So I'm not going to say that. Um, but for me, it's got to be the Germany-Spain game for like, I think tactically for me, that was such a amazing game, and especially with the scoreline and everything that, yeah, it's got to be Germany-Spain on my end. Jesse? Yeah, it's obviously Norway, isn't it? It was the best one. Like, we're not going to, there's not going to be a better, well, I mean, I guess there could be a better game. Obviously, those, like, massive blowout wins, like, aren't always that enjoyable because by the time the team's 3-0 up, you know it's done. But just in terms of having never seen a football match like that or never thinking I would see England play like that, it was just incredible um bon- like yeah bonkers like I feel like it still hasn't sunk in how just bizarre it was to kind of watch it unfold watch it unfold slowly <laughs> goal by goal <laughs> quickly goal by goal actually very quickly <laughs> um but we do have three quarterfinalists set before the last round of the group matches start tonight at the time of recording England, France, and Germany are through after getting their six points done and dusted. Now, let's get into how these quarterfinalists went through. Um, let's start with England, Norway, even though it pains me. Um, England, eight, Norway, nil. Jesse, do you want to start with this one? Just to kind of, you've had time to reflect now. You've had time to, to take off the your England crazy hat and maybe calm down a little bit. Um, do you want to take us through kind of what happened here? Yeah, obviously. I mean, I, I went into this game, I always kind of felt confident England would win, but ahead of the game, I kind of was thinking like 2-1 or something like that. Um, definitely not 8-0. And the game kind of started fairly evenly. I felt very nervous watching Guru write and run at Lucy Bronze, you know, all of those kind of feelings. But Obviously, there was the penalty that apparently wasn't a penalty. I actually still haven't watched it back because um, I just don't really care, to be honest. Uh, but George Stanway took the penalty very well. And I guess that at that point, like, that was a great start. But it was Lauren Hemp's goal when that was given. Um, VAR overturned the offside flag. I think that's when something just kind of really clicked in England. And obviously, Beth Mead was just able to get so much time and space on that right hand side to keep putting these crosses in but like not only that there was just so much room for for Lauren Hemp and Ellen White to also be kind of making those runs into the box to to get on the end of them it's no exaggeration that like England probably missed two or three as good chances to score on top of the ones that they did score there was so much time given to Kira Walsh who was like you know if you leave time for Kira Walsh she can just play balls wherever she wants like she's got that quality you know the Kira Walsh question is always like what she like under pressure and they just didn't put her under any pressure at all and they didn't bother really to change anything and it kind of just like kept on going and going and I guess unlike France's kind of statement win England didn't really even lay off that much in the second half I mean they obviously didn't score as, as, as many but they they added two goals there was you know, no sense that Norway were ever even going to pull one back. And I think that was also something that was really impressive. And I guess just um, what kind of struck me about it was how how it actually felt very in keeping with what Serena Beekman's demanded of this team. You know, we I kind of wrote about a bit about this, but in all of those World Cup qualifiers where England was scoring like eight against North Macedonia and she was like, England should score more. And it was a bit like, well, you know, like whatever. But it's that kind of demand, which I guess means that then when you get this opportunity against a team like Norway, who are a good team, but have just kind of set up very badly, you you absolutely blow them away because that's the, the kind of demands that are expected of you. And I think that's why it felt just so impressive from England. 
And it is curious. So far, we've seen that Serena Vigman says that she doesn't want to disrupt the rhythm um, tonight against Northern Ireland in terms of formation and who she plays. So if that same starting 11 starts against Northern Ireland, um, then perhaps they might be their own record again. Um, but we'll see about that. Um, I am... I am. I understand what she's saying, but also at the same time, we have seen a few nations, you know, get to the point where they're missing players and don't know how to play together without those players. So I understand what Serena Vigman is is saying in the sense that she wants to, you know, keep the team going and keep the rhythm. But also, if none, like no other players are getting, you know, enough match time, say like an Elsie Russo or an Ella Toon, who have been playing great off the bench, but maybe would need that extra time to really settle into the team um, against Northern Ireland, who, you know, I feel bad saying it, but it's a win, you know, it's it's a three points in the bag for England. Um, but that's just another conversation. I don't know how I feel about it yet. Um, Abdullah, we all know it wasn't expected for England to run right over Norway like this. What went so wrong for Norway? It's actually, I think... Oh, you know, if you look at it, I think they, I think, I think they tactically were, I think they got it a little bit wrong, not maybe in terms of the formation, but I think in terms of personnel, I think, well, I think Vildeboris is, is a really, really good center midfielder. I think you need freedom, freedom on him in there to start. I think her defensively, she's a lot better than, than Borisa and she would have helped Engin kind of, you know, um, at least given the legs to Engin to kind of control and distribute play and, and do well. Because when you're going up against England's double pivot of Kira Walsh and obviously Georgia Stanway, Georgia Stanway was giving Kira Walsh the legs. She was the one running around, being tenacious, you know, going into different pockets of space, receiving. And then obviously you had Fran Kirby who was dropping in and almost basically becoming a 4-3-3-4-1-4-4-1 kind of thing where she would be a third center midfielder. Whereas... Graham Hansen wasn't exactly doing that as the number 10 for Norway. So they were always going to be, they were outnumbered in that midfield uh, battle. And, um, you know, so at least if you had Manamon, you negate some of that and maybe you, you can, you can mark out one of the players, you know, and then you almost have like a, a two on two and then Gur Wrighton coming in is fine. But then again, it's, it doesn't work when again, your one, your two midfielders are more playmakers than they are of a balanced uh, skill set. So, I, I really think it was the midfield that didn't well, uh, didn't help, didn't help. But the obvious fact is they played a mismatched defensive line. I mean, Marimiel does obviously played at centre back for Chelsea, but then she's always better as a right back. Um, you know, Thoris Stodders played centre back, but again, you know, has a mistake or two in her. And then the full backs are actually wingers or centre backs. Like Tuva Hansen's a centre back, not really a winger, a uh, full back. And then Blackstad is a winger. It just was just, I think it, it worked against Northern Ireland in the first game because you can dominate possession, you know, without without fail. But here, you just, when there are so many caveats, and especially when they knew England's wingers are probably their most dangerous assets, and I think that's why they wanted to play Tuva Hansen there on the right-hand side, but then to, to stop Lauren Hemp. But then on the left side, you know, you, when you got Julie Blackstad, it doesn't help. It doesn't work with their counterattacking styles. I, I don't know. I just, to me, it didn't make any sense. And the fact that he didn't make any changes, Martin Short didn't make any changes almost in the 20th or 30th minute was, I think, puzzling for me as well. But this was a very statement 8-0 win from England, I think. Um, Jesse, what did England show in this match that will stick with them for the rest of the tournament? I think the... The defensive stuff, I don't think Norway, like, obviously did much, but I think, you know, that ability to kind of keep going and keep concentration, I think that's that's important to take forward into the tournament. And I also just think confidence, really, because I think, obviously, against Austria, maybe the result didn't really reflect the quality of the play. And obviously, like, England performed their XG and it was all a bit flat. Whereas I just think this showed that England can create lots of chances and score lots of chances. And ultimately, I think the more your attacking players believe that, the more likely they are to kind of convert their chances when they come. And I think that will be concerning for whoever's going to kind of play England next because, you know, they will back themselves to score at the very least. And look, they've conceded three shots on target this this whole tournament, no teams, you know, 
had less than that. So I think in terms of the the balance, obviously, because there were eight goals, that's like where lots of the focus has been. But I actually thought the balance of the whole team was really good. And yeah, even though Norway would were just rubbish and didn't really create anything, that's in part because England allowed them to, you know, we know what those Norwegian attackers can do and can do individually. And it was a whole team performance to to kind of stop them doing that, um, whether that came from, you know, ball recoveries, whether that came from having possession, whether that came from, you know, creating quick chances. So, yeah, I think kind of the confidence, the whole, like the whole team together mentality and it, it just felt good, right? Like it, it's just almost hard to kind of put into words what, what that could mean. And I think, you know, England did go into that game with pressure because it was the hardest game in the group. Germany and France had kind of come up with these statement performances in the first round of group matches and England had looked a bit flat. And, you know, they kind of were able to come out and say, you know, we're one of the favourites for a reason too. And, and this is what we can do. And, and, they did something that no one's ever done at European Championship, men or women. So it's not like it, it. It's not like Norway are a good team, but even if it they'd been a worse team, it would have still been an impressive result because people just don't go out and score eight against sides in European Championships, especially a side that has Ad Hegerberg go right in Caroline Graham Hansen, for example. Um, but Abdullah, focusing on Norway, they do have a match today, Norway, Austria, that could, well, I mean, it is going to seal the second spot. Um, can Norway bounce back after this big defeat? Obviously, you know, it's you lose 8-0, period. That's already, you know, it's a friendly, it's nothing, but you lose 8-0 in what was supposed to be the closest match of the group stage. Can Norway get back from that? You'd like to think they will. I mean, with the personalities that they've got in that side, you'd, you'd, you'd think that they are not going to allow for any slip-up against Austria, you know, and, and we know Austria is a very tough team to break down. I mean, we, I mean, England scored a goal against them. Yes, you know, we can put it on the nerves and, and, and the big occasion and all that. But Austria have always been known as a team that have been structurally, you know, sound and, and, and they really know how to... You know how to how to how to defend and and, and play and, and play you know decent counterattacking football. I mean, they've got a, a really a world class you know midfield trio. So, but I think overall, I think Norway have the better side, and with the attacking talent that they have against Austria's uh, probably defensive uh, now, I think it'll it'll come down to that. But I think you know Arda Hegerberg and Graham Hansen and and Engine are not going to allow for the team to do this again. I think they're going to be super laser focused uh, because they know that if they don't win this game, they're out. And, and with this golden generation, Arda coming back, uh, you know, the team is in, you know, on paper, that team is, well, you know, in their prime. That, that team needs, that need, team needs a, a quarter, a semifinal spot to really almost justify the, the players that they've got. So I think they will, uh, they'll be looking out for, for blood and, and they, they'll want to prove that, you know what, we're not, we that was just uh, an anomaly. We we lost eight 0 We lost eight 0 But we're a really good side. Jesse, do you want to give a quick prediction for Austria Norway? Who's gonna get that second place spot? I've got a back back the bagshot babes for Carl Carpenter at the very least. Um, I don't, yeah, I think I think this is kind of Austria's to lose because they would have to literally lose. They've looked defensively very solid generally. Um, I think they can feel confident that they can get at least a, a draw out of this. And again, yeah, Norway do have loads of attacking players that that could look really good. But we we've seen the difference between how Austria could defend against a good team and how Norway could defend against a good team. And I think they should go into the match feeling like it's kind of theirs for the taking. So Austria all the way. Let's go. Also, Austria Germany as a quarterfinal. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> um, for the sake of Carl, we're going to see a, a Sarah Zadrazil goal to secure the quarterfinal spot. That's what's going to happen. You heard it here first. Um, but let's, you mentioned them there, Jesse. Germany to Spain nil. Group B took an interesting turn with Germany already securing the first. They're not first, obviously not, because they've won the competition eight times, um, securing their quarterfinal <laughs> spot over Spain. Um, this match, I 
apart from the result, I really enjoyed this match, mostly because of the high tempo that was just consistently put out throughout the match. I was, yes, I was sad about the result, but I enjoyed the football match so much that I was still really happy at the end of it. Um, Spain did finish with 70% possession and a much higher attacking numbers overall, even though their shots on target were so pretty shit. Um, but Germany did have two shots on goal on target and two goals. Jesse, Germany definitely won the match, obviously. That's the most true. important stat. Um, but realistically, oh, analysis here. <laughs> I know it's great. It's really end up here. Um, but throughout the match, they were heavily outplayed in terms of possession, ball movement, and kind of Spain created chances, not really many, but they were, you know, if they had a better striker, maybe they would have been a bit more dangerous. But does this outplaying of Spain and Germany still winning, does it say more about Germany's attacking power or Spain's inability to score? I think Spain's big problem in this game was that they conceded so early on. And it felt always felt, I think, after Clara Boulle's goal that it was going to be relatively easy for Germany to kind of sit back and defend well. I mean, Spain obviously had, I, I think, two really good chances, you could say, when um, Lucia Garcia went through on goal and the Mariona shot that was really well saved by Mela Fromms. And obviously, if those two things go different ways, you're looking at a very different game. But I think... Even if if one of those goals had been scored, I still think Germany had another level they could have gone to that we just didn't really need to see because Spain, they're almost a bit like Sweden, I feel like, in the sense of they they play well and they play nice, but it always just feels like it's in front of the team. It's, it's never very like penetrative, so it never actually feels very dangerous, even though when you're watching, you're like, you don't really feel like they're playing badly. But literally, yeah, as soon as Clara Ball scored, I was like, this game just feels almost totally, totally done. And even like in the last like 20 minutes, I was like, oh, come on, Spain, like just get a goal back so it can be like a bit more exciting. Because I will say, I feel like this tournament, like we haven't had a whole host of like exciting games, apart from Group C. Group C are the ones pulling, pulling us along with excitement. But yeah, I just, I just think Germany is so strong defensively they hold their shape pretty well and it felt like the worst kind of matchup because Spain don't seem to have the ability to kind of get through a defence that's even vaguely well organised and I do think it's kind of bizarre that that they didn't really like seem to try anything different like even as the match went on you know we saw Spain basically get back into the Finland game with a load of pinpoint balls from Mapileon and some great headers. And it was like, well, maybe you should just kind of put someone on as like a normal number nine and, and try and do something like that and try and disrupt Germany that way. But there wasn't really any kind of change of approach from Vilda at all, which, you know, like maybe we're not surprised by at this point, but it was almost like Spain had just like accepted they were going to lose the game, which was very bizarre to me. Maybe it's good. That, I mean, they've never beaten Germany, right? So maybe there's like a bit of a mentality thing. You know, if we look back to the Norway-England game, the reason why I always felt that England were going to win is because we literally always beat Norway at international competition. I think those things do matter. And this goes back to, again, like why it was so strange that Spain was so heavily rated by the bookies because them winning this tournament would require them to do a shitload of things that they've never ever done before and and maybe that just kind of ended up playing into this as well yeah it was in terms of kind of changing the game obviously this match started with uh, Lucia Garcia as the central striker and Laia Alexandria as a six with Aitana and Patri pushed up which you could you could I mean Patri is arguably the best six in the world and she looks very uncomfortable in a very we're not going to say very uncomfortable because she is a great player, but as soon as she stepped back into that sixth position later on in the match, everything changed. And she just literally just, she just switched into just a natural position and natural into that. And it, and it worked and we're not going to get into Jorge Villa quite a lot. Um, Cause that's going to take forever, but it was interesting how little changed happened. And I guess, you know, fair play because Spain were still dominating the match and we're still able to get the ball around and stuff. But essentially, there was no striker. And Luciana Garcia 
she, you know, she's not a bad player, but when you're missing one V ones like that, and when you're and like unable to get onto the ball as a central striker, because she is a winger, she isn't a striker. Um, you could tell that it just wasn't working and it, and it wasn't working from the start. Um, so why he took so long to make that change really baffles me. But Abdullah, were you for one surprised by the scoreline? No, I, you know, honestly, no, because I think we, we called it in, in, in the last episode that it was so tight that it, like, either result could have been um, could have been predicted and either result would have been something like, okay, you could make a case for why that result happened. And I, I think this is one of those cases where, Jeremy, I think more it's not the scoreline, but I think it's the manner in which Germany won that's that's more surprising. It's they they looked so comfortable in their counterattacking system and it, they almost like they, they they must have seen an hour before kickoff, they must have seen Spain side and went, right, we can take advantage of this. Like, you know, when 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 Patsy's been pushed up and and Laya's playing as a number six, and then obviously Lucia Garcia is playing as a striker. A lot of these, a lot of these players would have been like, yeah, but we're comfortable. They're the ones who've been forced to change for whatever you know their injuries. They don't know their best formation yet because of one or two players being out. So, you know, let let us play our game and, and let's let's take advantage. And I think they 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 managed to do that. You know. Um, quite well i mean when you've got like esther gonzalez and, and amoy on, on the bench who are both more traditional strikers and and you know they've they've played there so many times i think it would have given hendrik and hegering something different to think about it would have maybe forced lena obedorf to 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 kind of maybe have to drop back a little bit more opening up more space in midfield so there are so many of these options in there and when an Alexia plays with aitana in midfield they both make four i mean they why they control them they both make forward runs Patri is, like you said, she's a six. So her first instinct is I want to drop back and pick up possession and kind of distribute it that way. You know, the other option could have been instead of playing Mariona out on the left, maybe move Mariona into a number eight position. I mean, that that would have made maybe a little bit of sense in terms of getting someone to make those runs and play that playmaker role, because maybe that could be the answer. You play Mariona and Bonmati, Aitana together, and you put Patri behind, behind them, maybe that's an option and you can throw on uh, an Athenia, you know, or a Marta Cardona or an Olga Carmona on the left-hand side and then have something different. But to me, those make a lot of sense. I can see maybe why he wanted to play a false nine up front, but it just it just didn't work. So, yeah, it's just the manner of the game that that really that, that surprised me more than the scoreline. And the answer might be obvious as to what needs to happen, as in Spain score more goals or maybe put an actual striker on, like Amayur Sarregui. Um, but with Jorge Villa, of course, it's... Um, a bit shady as to what's actually going to be used. But I will say that um, Laia Alexandri was not in team training. I believe it was yesterday. And Mariona was the one that that was training in that midfield um, trio. So perhaps on Saturday, if Laia Alexandri isn't back, we might see Mariona drop into that middle three. For the record, um, I didn't know that. For the record, I didn't know no, that. No, no. I was, yeah, I'm just <laughs> affirming what you said. Um, that was yesterday in training. So I haven't had the update yet as to what like, Alexandri's uh, like, status is right now in terms of injury and whatnot. Um, but we could see that happen. And perhaps, like Jesse said in the last episode for the Netherlands, injuries um, might force the correct decision on the manager. Um, but we'll see about that. And yeah, but... Jesse, obviously, you know, Jorge Villa doesn't really have the best grip on to how to use his players that he has. Um, and obviously, you know, the quality on the pitch is good enough to kind of carry the the team through as England did under Phil Neville, for example. Um, but is this a sustainable style of play for Spain in this tournament in particular? I don't think so. I think it's hard to look at Spain right now and think they are going to reach a semi-final like I I feel kind of ambivalent about the Spain-Denmark game but it feels even if Spain did get through it does feel hard to imagine them beating England I think what's frustrating about it is it feels like there's lots of obvious answers and he just doesn't doesn't choose to use them you know like I was um <laughs> this is gonna be a second Carl Carpenter mention on this podcast but I was talking to Carl yesterday about um, you know the things Statsbomb do where you look at like the most statistically similar player to like to someone so I was like oh let's do Alexia and it's Claudia Pina and you're just like right well there you go like the most statistically similar player in the world to Alexia Puteas is literally in the Spain squad 
like it is really not rocket. It doesn't feel like rocket size. And she literally plays with the midfield who is in your mid- Spain midfield because they all play for Barcelona. And I think this is what's like just so annoying because you're like, the answer is right in front of your face. And I think what's really weird about Jorge Vilda is like when you look at some managers, like, you know, kind of like the Phil Neville thing, what was frustrating about them as a manager is it was like, it, it was like fine, you know, like it was all like kind of mostly logical decisions Rachel Daly at fullback aside but anyway she's good at that now so maybe Phil was right all along so it kind of worked and it what was annoying was like it could never go to that next level it could never take that that extra level of complexity that maybe you know England needed to to be able to face up to teams in different ways whereas with Spain it's almost like the opposite it's like he chooses the weirdest combination of things like he doesn't just take that simple like I will play a number nine. I will play Alexia's Barcelona deputy in the place where Alexia played before. Like I will keep my like team structure. It's, it's all this like constant shuffle, even switching from playing Irene Guerrero in the first game to moving Patry forward in the second and playing like Alexandri there. If that's what you wanted to do, why not try that against Finland so you could get used to it because they're the weak team. If you thought you wanted that maybe like more defensive kind of version for playing Germany. Like it's, it drives, I'm not a Spain fan and it drives me up the wall because none of it makes any sense. None of it ever makes any fucking sense. Um, I think I do, it's just the way that he's gotten to the players that he has now with the injuries. So obviously Amayo Saregi was was out, um, didn't come in until Alexia Potellas got injured, which was obviously the second injury that, um that Spain got and on top of that she played in a qualifying stage scored 11 goals as of nothing and she's still not being used in her position that she's obviously quite good at um and again you know the Claudia Pina thing very obvious answer to to putting someone in the midfield that actually knows how to play with the midfield not a center back uh turn six that's very forced um I believe I don't think Laia Alexandri is quite ready to to be debuted as a six in a major tournament against Germany, for example. But I can't wait for Gareth Taylor to play her there next season. <laughs> oh, God. You know what? Oh, my God. Can I just say that tweet? I forgot who it was by, but the tweet was um, BBC is using Vicky Lozada more than Gareth Taylor used Vicky <laughs> Lozada at Man City last season. And that killed me because applaud. That was amazing. Um, but Abdullah, going back on to Germany, because if not, we're going to stay on Jorge Vila for the entire episode. Um, <laughs> counterattacking and set pieces are Germany's strengths, as we've seen kind of so far. Can this win the entire tournament for Germany? Yes, I think we've seen teams win purely on set pieces and counterattacking. It's it's one of those it's one of those styles. I mean, not that there are too many. I mean, you either a possession-based team or you're a counterattacking-based team. It's the it's the method you use to you to do that is which is different every time. But in in a weird way, counterattacking setups and set pieces is a more of an assured way of 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 getting things done. Yes, maybe um, you know more, but you, but I think you also have, you have to be really good at it. And I think with Germany being have kind of perfected this, um, you know, perfected this uh, uh, this system. I think it then becomes it, it then becomes a fact that uh, they they can do it because they've they've done it against Spain, who were probably the antithesis of of their of their style of play. They're a completely possession dominant team, 70% possession versus, you know, the 30% and the team that counterattacks versus the one that doesn't. And if they can do it against Spain, then there's a very good chance they can do it against uh, teams that are, you know, other teams that are of that level. So yeah, I can see Germany doing this and and with the players that they have and and how good they are and how well versed they are in in the style of play. I I don't see, I don't see why they can't. That is fair. I think it was quite impressive. Um, not impressive, but just Germany's attacking power is just so overwhelming sometimes. Um, and when you look at not only their attacking power, the defensive defensive action is is good enough. But when you look at you know fullbacks like Julia Gwynn, who I thought did really really well against Spain, um, you have her to kind of get the ball back and start the counterattack, and then you just have 
Clarabol, you know, being able to finish those things. And you have Svenja Huth, who's had a good tournament. But their, their attacking power, I think, has been one of the most statement attacking in this tournament so far in, in terms of consistency and actually being able to, you know, get two shots on goal and score both of those, um, which is it quite easy, as, as Spain can probably tell you. Um, but moving on to Group C, where the top spot of the group is still up for grabs between Sweden and the Netherlands. Sweden to Switzerland one. Jesse, where you may be a bit disappointed with this with Sweden in this match. Disappointed is probably the wrong word because I've been telling you all that this is what Sweden are like for so long. That this is what they do. They look good, but they're not actually that good. Um, yeah, I think Sweden's problem just still feels like. Attacking-wise, it doesn't quite click. I'm really never sure about... I thought they looked worse in an attacking sense going back to the back four to try and fit an extra. So they they played Rolfo, Aslani, Hurtig and Blackstenius um, and played Magdalena Eriksson at left-back, which I personally desperately dislike. And I think... You, they did lose some of the dynamism that you get. Like, I like having John Anson and Hannah Glass as, as wingbacks, and I don't think you need to play all four of those attackers. Like, it's worth being able to, to bring them on and, and use them for kind of different things. Uh, I definitely thought as well, like, Lena Hurtig really doesn't suit that. Like, she's a lot better, I think, when she kind of is that, that sole number nine, bringing other players in rather than kind of playing behind Blackstenia. So, and I think this is the problem that I that I kind of always feel with, with this set of Swedish attackers is it doesn't ever feel like there's a combination, There's there's been a combination found of them, which really gets the best out of all of them. And I do think that kind of comes from a lack of ruthlessness in terms of who you start and then who fits into the system in that way. I think also, you know, it feels like, even if you do want to play those attackers, there's maybe more interesting ways to do it. Like I saw someone on Twitter suggesting, like, why don't Sweden play Rolfo at left back rather than Magda? Like, you're playing a Swiss team who really aren't creating that much going forward. Rolfo has just spent the whole season doing it for Barcelona. You get basically her to, like, bomb forward as, as a player and, and then you can play more, more attackers up front. But, yeah, I, I just think they... I, the thing about Sweden is it never really feels like it clicks or it's working or it's particularly exciting but they do grind out results and they are still I think defensively strong I think both the goals they've conceded in this tournament have been more like high quality shots than than specifically they've been very open to like conceding opportunities so I could still see them doing well in this in the in the tournament but I think the big ask for them will be that they're going to need to outscore the Netherlands versus when they play Portugal to avoid France and I do think Sweden France will be a great quarterfinal so I kind of want that one to happen but I I think that will be hard for them because we've kind of seen that Portugal are are a lot of fun and I really enjoyed Group C because I think Switzerland and Portugal have done a really good job on putting pressure on these teams and it, it's really fun. Like this is all four of these teams could go through from this group. So that would be, it will be, it's going to be a good day, day, this one. It really should be. Um, I just do want to mention that Hannah Benenson goal. Cause that was sweet. Oh my God. The technique behind that, just from that, but then also the way she made the contact with the ball was just, that was a chef's kiss. That was just so beautiful. Um, but yeah, Abdullah, Sweden couldn't get by the Swiss defense organization. And I think Jesse and I, uh, you and I talked about this, about how Sweden are so inefficient in terms of attacking, even against the Dutch that had, when they had the back three with Hannah Glass um, and Jon Anderson as the wing backs. But Abdullah, could this, you know, inability to kind of use their attacking um, players well, could this be a big problem for Sweden going forward? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they're going to get tougher competition than the Swiss, if, you know, when they proceed to the, the quarters and even if they get to the semis as well. And I think 
I, I don't I don't understand why there's there's a there's this change in, in system when you look back 12 months ago when they were at the Olympics and they were probably one of the most dangerous teams going forward. Um, they were, and I think they were playing with the back four. Aslani was playing a slightly deeper role as almost like a number creative number 10. Um, Rolfo was on the left, but, but kind of the way that system worked, it was like, it was rehearsed. It was practiced, and they were able to break teams down. And yes, they lost, they, they lost to, to Canada in the final, but you know, the entire way through the tournament up until that game, they were looking very, very dangerous. And then switching to this back three and I kind of get playing Magda left left center back, get her to push forward, play almost as like a false uh, left back when they're out of pos- in possession. And then you have Rolfo as this left winger instead of a left wing back. I, I get the theory behind it, but it's just, if you haven't practiced it enough and you've seen that it's, not worked against the Switzerland side who haven't been the best, then, you know, it may be time to switch back to what you, the team knows and kind of really, because I don't, the squad isn't that heavily different to what it was 12 months ago. So why would you then not stick to what you know and what the players know? And, and it's, it's good to have it as a pocket strategy. Yeah. Maybe you need to switch it up for a specific game or a specific moment, but it just felt like, um, that wasn't there, and I, I would go back to maybe playing the four and uh, and getting the players comfortable again, rather than playing this maybe three four three and 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 it looking a little bit, um, you know, a little bit, you know, clustered and and kind of fitting in almost fitting in all the strikers and all the big players up front just so they can they can fit them in. So, yeah, that's uh, that. I think it could be a problem going forward. And Jesse, obviously, we've been talking about this formation for quite a bit now, so maybe I'll, I'll change the question up a, bit, a little bit. Um, going, you know, when you look at Sweden potentially playing against, you know, a France, for example, what formation would you like? I think the answer is quite obvious in terms of what we've talked about in terms of personnel and everything else. But would you resort to a back four with a better positioning and say not Magda Eriksson as left back? Or would you resort back to that back three with the wing backs? I personally like the back three, clearly more than Abdullah does. So I, I would kind of lean towards that personally because I think it gets the best out of all of those centre-backs and kind of unleashes the attacking ability of Hannah Glass and Jonna Anderson. Um, and again, maybe you could even switch out Jonna for Frido and play her at wing-back instead. I think the... The worry I have for Sweden playing against like a a France or something like that is this this feeling that they don't. I think when they were at the Olympics, what felt impressive about them is that when they got ahead, they were truly good at, at almost shutting games down. But there's kind of been this this creeping tendency that we've seen at the Euros is that when they do finally score, they almost seem to like either relax or start to worry and let teams back into it. Like I thought the Swiss looked at their most dangerous after Sweden scored, obviously in the, in the Dutch game, they, they were just able to get back into it in, in the second half. Whereas it felt like in the Olympics, they were very much like one and done. And that's kind of what took them all the way through to final. Although of course you then again, see it there where Canada kind of are able to get back into it. So I just, I think for me, this Euros, the best teams have been kind of ruthless and relentless, you know, the Germany, France and England. And and I worry for Sweden about coming up against a team like that because they don't, whilst I do think they are still defensively good, they don't feel like they are at the same level they were last summer in terms of maybe just their own like confidence around it. I think that's fair. It is hard to put, down as to what has changed from Sweden that we saw at the Olympics at you know the reason why they were favorites now is because they've had such a run good run of tournaments leading up to this um and kind of now they're a bit more maybe it is the pressure maybe they crumbled on the pressure you know they're not England um but it is hard to, to kind of pinpoint what has really changed from the Sweden side that we've all kind of not hyped up, but we have expected a lot more than what they've given us. Um, but Abdullah, going back onto the Swedish attack, are they good enough to win a tournament? Yeah, I mean, it's just, this is Sweden. I mean, they're 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 not a bad team overnight, or rather over a few months. They're still 
they've still got the same players. They've still got the same manager. They've still got the same, you know, uh, same philosophies. And nothing has changed. It's just, I mean, in, in the sense of those variables haven't changed. It's just been the system. And I think if they can nail down the right system and get the right set of 11 players running on the pitch and, and coordinating it and really, you know, opening teams up, there's this, this team is as good as any to, to go on and win the tournament in, in, in kind of swashbuckling style. That is fair enough. We'll see what happens in this last group match, but we'll stick for Group C with Netherlands 3, Portugal 2. This might have been the most exciting match so far in terms of potential upsets because um, it was there and it could have happened. Jesse, what were your thoughts as you were watching the match? Yeah, this was so fun. I, this was because I missed the Portugal-Switzerland uh, match. So I feel like this is definitely the best game I've kind of seen in terms of having no idea what was going to happen. These are two like quite chaos teams and the Netherlands are really growing on me, not because they're like amazing at football, but just because they are so chaotic. It's really, really funny. You're like, every time they go forward, it feels like they could score, but every time the opposition goes forward, it feels like they could score. Um, And yeah, this was like kind of classic case. Like Portugal were like 2-0 down again, like immediately. And you're like, Surely they can't come back and make it 2-2 again. And then they, like, promptly did that um, by the start of the second half. And then Daniela van der Dock had to ruin the fun for everyone who isn't Dutch or an Arsenal fan, probably. Um, or Lyon fan, I guess, too. Um, and, and 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 win it for, for the Netherlands. But, yeah, I mean... I love Portugal. They're just so jokes. I don't know what they're doing about defending from set pieces. They are so bad at that. Why are so many teams in this tournament so bad at defending from set pieces? It feels like the one thing you should have figured out how to do. And But yeah, the Dutch as well, I think, I think this was like ultimately a good win for them. You know, to be missing Miedemar, Gronen, and then Van Vienendal and now and I mean, question marks over whether those two are good things or bad things. But the first two are definitely bad things to miss. So only they were missing four of their starting 11 from that first game. So I think to come away from, from a win is, is a pretty good result for them. Yeah, and going off of that, they did have players missing for this match. But then some of the replacements were quite decent. Lineth Bernstein obviously is more of a winger, but she does have the capabilities of making the run she makes good runs as a central striker so i'll give her that much better than lucia garcia um and obviously for shaki gurunen in the midfield it was damarisa gurola who we're obviously quite fond of her after the champions league this season and um, so the level wasn't entirely put down but it, it you're missing you know vivian Miedema, who has goals in her but joe ward says no problem um abdullah what have you seen as the dutch's problem perhaps because you know a three two win over Portugal wasn't necessarily um, expected. Yeah, I think it just comes down defensively. I mean, you talked about Bernstein and, and, and Damaris, but like those two from a midfield and an attacking perspective, that's fantastic depth. And 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 those two have proved that they can they can step in for Viv Miedema and Jackie Lohan and, and, and really perform. I mean, uh, Damaris got, ma- you know, got play of the match uh, in that game. So Kind of goes to show that the quality of and depth that they have in midfield and 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 going forward. But I think it's defensively where the problem is. It, I still don't think that they've got their 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 back four settled in terms of what they actually want. Because Anik now played there, and I think she was she was decent. But then I think she's better in a back three from what we've seen. And right now, because she could grow into a fantastic defender in a back four. But it just seems like there was a lot of pressure on her to basically do the leading and the defending. And then you have Stephanie van der Gaat. And you, then you obviously, in, in the game against Sweden, when Dominique Janssen moved into a centre-back role, they looked a lot better and then, because then they had more pace and more drive down the left-hand side. But it's still Dominique Janssen, still question marks over her defending. We saw in the Champions League against Barcelona, she stepped up way too many times out of position. So she has the tendency to do that. So I, I really think their problem is going to come down defensively. Though their, their backup goalkeeper, Daphne van Domlesar, if I've not got that, butchered that completely, but she's been pretty decent. So, I mean, when when when, when Jesse talks about Van Vierendal being out, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I mean, it, it you can regardless call it a good thing just because then now they're developing their next goalkeeper. I mean, now they need to start seeing who the next goalkeeper is going to be. And if she's getting a third, fourth, fifth cap in a major tournament and she does, okay, fine. You put the scoreline aside, her performances in general have been pretty decent. So 
they're, they're at least developing someone there and, and going through that. But other than that, I think still think they need to sort out their defense and really find some, some defenders to really stick together and maybe get one or two players for depth. I personally think that Sarah and Vienendal thing was a blessing in disguise. Um, I, sorry, you know, she's an experienced keeper. She has the, she's a smart player in terms of, you know, carrying out the team being, you know, a voice in the back, but essentially, you know, I mean, we saw what she did to Stefan de Graz and was it Anik Nauen? Um, that was a very clear, um, avoidable error, might we say, that wouldn't have taken out two of your players and yourself and at the same time. Um, so I think Sarah Vinodal has been kind of, she's been ready for her replacement to kind of step up. But I do think that it was kind of a blessing in disguise. I think a young keeper who's hungry and ready to compete at a tournament like the Euros, I think will come good for the Dutch defense. But again, maybe that just, that's a hot take and I'll regret what I'm saying um, after this week. But Jesse, Portugal, full of vibes and goals. Somehow they're getting a lot of goals. Um, what is your take on them? Yeah, I think they've been really fun, haven't they? And, you know, Alex, I know you've mentioned a couple of times that obviously lots of them play their club football together, which I, I do feel like it helps. And it just feels like they've got a really exciting crop of, of talented players, you know, kind of some of whom we've seen, you know, Diana Silva obviously had a bit of a strange time at Aston Villa. Um, but I think, you know, we all knew that there was a lot of talent there and she's kind of shown that. Jessica Silva's obviously been great for years. Um, we've also seen a bit of Kike Nazareth, who's, you know, George Mendes's first woman client or whatever. We're supposed to be excited about that. Um, but she also does look really good. So so that's legit too. Um, and I think they just kind of show that if you play with a bit of like passion and, and freedom, maybe, I think they've been, I think, you know, coming up against Switzerland and then the Dutch are two like defences who aren't particularly stern. I don't know whether they'll get quite so much joy against Sweden, but just to kind of, play with the enjoyment of being there and I guess maybe it has been a bit of a free hit for them because obviously they weren't in the competition until about two months ago uh Ines Pereira is also just hilarious to watch in goal like just like constantly doing the most mad sweeper keeper stuff in the world and then flapping at every single cross that comes into the box because she's tiny so I think they've been a really kind of great advert in terms of being able to maybe play with that pressure off and have a bit more fun with how you want to play and, and kind of see what you create by by almost like sticking to your own guns and, and believing in in what you want to do because I feel like it would be so easy to see yourselves as kind of the underdogs and, and want to sit back and not do the tricks and flicks and stuff but obviously you know they're like we're here and, and that's the way we play and, and we're going to do it and you know, Jessica Silva's going to be rebonering crosses in from <laughs> from uh, from the line. That's that's great. Like that's enjoyable to to watch. That rebona pass was too good. That was so satisfying. Um, Abdullah. So for the last um, matches of this group, Netherlands play Iceland, Sweden play Portugal. It's now down to goal difference. Who is going to get that top spot? Oh god. Um I'm gonna say Sweden just because like Jesse said, Portugal shouldn't have that much joy against a bit more of a solid Swedish backline. Just I mean their defenders are just world class, right? So you've got to just go down to that and 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 so Sweden should be able to put a couple of goals away on the other end. Um, and on the other side, I think Iceland are just a very compact team and the Dutch, while they've got some great players going forward, could get frustrated by, by Iceland. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say Sweden going to go top and then the Netherlands will come second. Jesse, hot takes. First and second. Go quick fire. One, two. That's not a one, two. That's not a really one, two. One, two, go. <laughs> Netherlands Sweden. <laughs> Netherlands Sweden. Okay. I was thinking of hot takes, but I'm not doing them. I'm not doing them. Netherlands Sweden. I would just think how amazing it would be if Switzerland and Portugal did both win. But I don't think it will actually happen. But I think Netherlands will I think Netherlands will do better than Sweden. And so quick fire through the last four matches. 
In Group A, Austria beat Northern Ireland 2-0. A marginal win, but could be big for that second place spot, as we did mention at the beginning of the episode. Abdullah, we did talk about it a little bit, but focusing a bit more on Austria, how do you see that they could get a win over Norway? I think it comes down to their defensive discipline in that midfield and how well those three do. If Feisinger, Zadrasil, and, and uh, Puntigan can 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 really get it together, control that midfield, uh, you know, off the ball as well, as well as when they get it and really you know unlock the Austrian attack, then I really think that's 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 possibly where their joy is going to come because that's their strong as a, as a collective, the strongest Swedish defensively. But if we're looking at individuals and you and you're looking at uh, an area, and I think in midfield they've got they've got talent that is equal, if not better, than a lot of the teams at the Euros. And and, and in, in some quarters, you could argue that it's a better midfield than, than Norway. So I really think it comes down to that to get that win. Fair enough. And in Group D, France clinched that first place spot with the win over Belgium. Jesse, you had these hot takes on France um, before this tournament. Now they arguably perhaps underperformed against Belgium. What did you think of that? I thought they were fine in this game, to be honest. Um, I think, you know, something we've generally seen, I feel, in this tournament, and I wonder if we'll see again tonight with England, Northern Ireland, is some of the, the more medium teams want to play more openly. So it means the best teams can get big wins against them, but then the smaller teams are like still willing to kind of sit back. And I think that's almost the difference of what happened here um, compared to compared to the Italy game for France. Although, of course... You know, maybe conceding two goals isn't isn't exactly what you want necessarily in this group stage, or like isn't the most impressive thing. But the Belgium goal was delicious, so it's fa- fair enough, really, I guess. Um, but yeah, France look very good, and hopefully they play Sweden next because that will be fun. That would be fun to say the least. I do have to say that Belgium impressed me in terms of um, passing patterns sometimes, but then it would get to the end, and you can tell that all they wanted to do was get the ball to Tessa Vollard. Um, even if it meant kind of forcing it, which meant that the play just went to shit after that. Um, so it was quite disappointing because they would get to a really good spot um, passing the ball through the midfield, midfield, you know, creating the, creating the very stereotypical, not stereotypical, just the very basic triangles in the midfield that you're supposed to do. Um, and then, yeah, they, the pass to Tessa Willup would always just be a hospital ball and she had nothing to do with it. And then France just started another attack. Um, so that was a bit disappointing, but... Italy came back to draw 1-1 with Iceland. And that second place spot for Group D is up for grabs. Jesse, again, we know you love Iceland. It's okay. I'm sorry. What did you make of this match? They're so dumb and annoying. And it's unfair because they, they're, not, they're not a bad team. They just can't finish their chances. Um, Italy was so bad for the first half of this game. And then they brought on all the players they probably should have started with and they did look a lot better, to be fair to them. But Iceland, I think, still should have... should have, They should have come away with six points from both of these games and then they would be through. So really, really frustrating for them. You, I mean, you never know. Maybe they'll beat France. I don't know. I don't know quite what happens if they beat France. What would have to happen? I can't bother to figure it out now. But, um, you know, France might change all their players, rest everyone. But I think you could see on their faces at the end of the game that they knew that the race was run here. Um, I in This second this second spot, it's felt like all three of the teams don't really want it somehow. And I think, again, that's why Group C feels really tasty because it's like if you come second you have to play France whereas if you come first it feels like you probably can say hello to a semi-final spot given the kind of quality we've seen in group D yeah that is fair and Abdullah last question before we move on to to quick fire Jesse quick fire have your answer prepared please I'm giving you that advantage um Abdullah who do you think will get that second spot because of course Iceland do play France so it seems like a very very hard task um but it's belgium italy in the last match who do you think is going to win that oh like jesse said i think both teams are sitting there and and like yeah, do you want to go through second no no, no i'll let you go no no i'll let you go and since everyone's being really you know having nice manners and saying you do it no but i think you just got to give it to belgium italy have just severely underperformed i mean you know the, the way they lost to france the draw against um you know, the draw against Iceland, 
I mean, before the tournament, people were calling Italy these dark horses. They're going to go through. They're a big team. You know, there was just based on the hype. Yeah, I know. Based on the hype, there was just this, this Italian, like, it's, it's the, the thing is they have the team, but they just didn't perform. So I'm just going to give it to Belgium just on the basis of the fact that that, that counterattack, that, well, I don't know if it was really a counterattack, but that goal against France yesterday showed that if they get even a little bit of space, they can they can finish. And whether it's James Kaiman or or Tessa Willard, like they've got a couple of players that, that can do it. And you know, I think maybe against an Italian side that hasn't been so good, I think Belgium will be able to express themselves a little bit more, be a little bit more open. And then I think we might be able to see a more. Uh, I think in overall, I think we'll just see an open game. So then it just comes down to who can finish. But yeah, I'm going to give it to Belgium. Who had Janice came in making Wendy Renard look like an amateur defender on their bingo Dude, card? To be, to be fair, it's not a bad shot considering they play club football, so she knows all her weaknesses, and she plays right back next to her. So there, there is that, there is that caveat to it. That little spice in Janice Cayman's confidence to go against Wendy Renard, um, which doesn't seem too hard at this point. Um, and to quickly finish off, what games are we looking forward to the most in the next set of fixtures, Jesse? There's lots of good ones. I think both the Group C ones. I still believe that Iceland could beat France and go through. I'm going to still <laughs> back them, so that one too. Um, but yeah, I think I think if I had to pick just one, Netherlands, Switzerland would be the one for me. I think that's fair, Abdullah. I know your I know your answer, Alex, but I've I've got to go with that one as well because it's just it's just a tasty tasty game. I want to see what my main thing for the Denmark Spain games. I want to see what Spain do in midfield. I want to see how that works because, you know, if they do win and go through, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next in the quarterfinals and what they end up deciding to do out of the essentially what will be three different setups that they would have used. So I'm just intrigued to see what's the third setup and then what I think they are to ultimately end up going with. So. Denmark versus Spain for me. Yeah, I'm going to say the same just because of, of what's up for, for grabs in the sense that both teams need to... We haven't really seen that that next gear of either side. Obviously, Denmark got the very, very narrow win over Finland um, and Spain obviously lost against Germany in a very weird manner. But I think that match is going to be very good because I think both sides have the capability of taking it up next year but whether they're actually going to do it and whether it's going to be good that's the entire question behind it um i do think also austria norway is going to be really interesting and really tasty um i'm glad we've got so many um like like shootout games for places i think it is like really fun. um i'm a bit annoyed i'm going to england northern ireland tonight because i'd actually quite like to watch austria Norway. This is like I went to England, Japan at the Women's World Cup and missed Argentina, Scotland, and I still regret it. Oh so. no, <laughs> that is a big regret. There, no, I am very excited to not be going to England tonight, um, because I am really intrigued by this Austria-Norway match. Very, very. Of course, much. we have to back Spain to beat Denmark because Alex and I sat next to each other for the Brighton quarterfinal. So we need an England-Spain quarterfinal. Right? We need an England-Spain. I, I've accepted my fate as a Spanish supporter and have accepted that we will lose in the quarterfinals against, against England. I've accepted it. There's no way. There's no so way. you got to get there first and Penela might have other ideas. Oh, God. That's, um, your Mapi Leon is going to be going up against Penel Harder. How do you feel about that? I make no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, then. <laughs> But we'll end it on that on that remark. Um, thank you for listening to our Euros episode. We'll be coming to you throughout the month with analysis from the games, and we'll be back next after the third and last set of group fixtures wraps up on Monday. Um, we'll be back then with another episode ahead of the knockout stages. Um, make sure you're following us on Twitter at BoxBoxWCL. Of course, we're rebranded this summer as Euros, um, so ignore that. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening and see you soon.